with absolutely no tasting notes. I'm Tim, and I'm joined by my drinking buddy, Hilary. Hi. What are we serving today? <laughs> I'm going to show you by Zoom, see yep. if you can guess what this is. It's, I mean, it looks like, I'm, I'm hoping, milk <laughs> or something. <laughs> um, Close. It's a Bailey's. Or a, a sample of something. It's a Bailey's. <laughs> it's a Bailey's, but it is kind of closer to milk because it's the non-dairy Bailey's, which is made of almonds. Ah, Bailey's Almond. Bailey's Almond. Because this week we're serving nut-based drinks. Nutty, nutty nuts. <laughs> yes, we are. I have got something nutty myself. Uh, can you see uh, what I'm drinking? Oh, Tough Nut O'Donnell's. Is it O'Donnell? Yeah, O'Donnell's Tough Nut Moonshine. Oh, God. Yes, He's I've got get a little punchy. jar. <laughs> a little jar of moonshine. Oh, that's cute. Um, and this one is flavoured with um, hazelnut and caramel. Oh, that sounds nice. And I just had one as a pre-warm-up, which was macadamia. <laughs> macadamia moonshine. So I'm actually on my second jar of moonshine with you. <laughs> God. Is it very strong? Um, it's, it's typical liqueur strength, nut liqueur strength, which is 25% mm-hmm. ABV. Chinnable. So it's okay. It's okay that I'm drinking it without any mixes. So I'm just quaffing it straight from the jar. <laughs> they do say you can make cocktails with it. I say they're lying. <laughs> <laughs> I say I'm too lazy. <laughs> yeah. No. No. It's because it's delicious. It's really nice just to drink by itself. I mean, you can put it in other stuff, but um, it's really good. Oh God, so yeah, I'm drinking a little little moonshine jar. I forgot how good mm. this Bailey's was. It's so tasty. Good. We're having a lovely time, but we should probably crack on with some facts. Um, okay. So <laughs> I'm going to start with um, almonds then. So you may have heard of both sweet and bitter almonds as flavourings. You've noticed that sometimes. So it doesn't just say almonds. Sometimes there's sweet almonds, sometimes bitter yes. almonds. Um, all almonds were originally bitter before they were cultivated to favour the sweet variety uh, in the ones that are harvested now. So the bitter almond, as you look at it, is slightly broader and shorter than the sweet almond and contains about 50% of the fixed oil that occurs in sweet almonds. It also contains an enzyme called amylsin, which, when it's in the presence of water, acts on the amygdalin and the prunicin, which makes glucose the essential oil of bitter almonds, both of which sound lovely, and it also makes cyanide, which sounds less lovely. <laughs> Um, the essential oil of bitter almonds, by the way, is called benzaldehyde. That is present in other things, but that's the thing that makes it taste almondy, that's a little bitter. Um, bitter almonds contain 42 times higher amounts of cyanide than the trace levels that you get in sweet almonds. So don't get your almonds mixed up unless you want to inadvertently ingest 42 times the amount of cyanide. (laughs) Uh, obviously it's processed <laughs> if we're adding um, bitter almond oil you know ben- benzaldehyde to anything it has been processed to remove the cyanide so don't be scared of anything you buy just don't eat it raw 
Um, almonds are actually one of the earliest domesticated fruit trees. Um, domesticated almonds appeared in the early Bronze Age, so that's 3000 BCE. And you can find them at archaeological sites like at Numera, which is very old, in Jordan. Um, they were also buried with Tutankhamun in his tomb in Egypt. That was 1325 BCE. And then it spread from sort of that area on the east of the Mediterranean, all around the Mediterranean, southern Europe, northern Africa. Um, and then eventually, quite famously, over to California. Um, now, California is a big deal um, with almonds. The, the pollination of California's almonds is the largest annual managed pollination event in the world. They use 1.4 million hives. That's nearly half of all the beehives in the US. They get brought to the almond orchards each February. It's like in... Glastonbury for bees. <laughs> it's like Glastonbury for bees, yeah, except they... Well, I was going to say they have to work, but, you know, it's, it's pollinating. Um, in 2020, world production of almonds was 4.1 million tonnes. That was led by the US, who provide 57% of the world's total. So even though almonds are like this native Mediterranean thing, uh, now, yeah, the US, California specifically, is by far and away the biggest producer. Um, say the word again for me. How do you pronounce it? Almond. Almond? Yeah. Almond. <laughs> so some people say almond and hit the hard L. Some people say almond no. and completely miss the hard L out altogether. Almond. I'm somewhere in between. I sort of do a soft L. Almond. Almond. Um, so the word, and I, I can explain why this is. So the word comes from the uh, late Latin amandula, or amandula, which doesn't have an L in it, A-M. Uh, which in turn comes from amygdala, from the ancient Greek. So the al in the English version, because it's a in other languages, it's just a-m. In English we have a-l-m. And that is because we've confused it with the Arabic prefix of al that we have for other words. Um, so it, it first kind of dropped the a in Italian and became mandor mandola. So it went from being amandula in Latin to mandula in Italy. We took that, put some Arabic in front of it, and that's why it's spelt almond for us, even though it's almond in other languages. But some people don't pronounce that L because they know it from other languages as well. So that's why we have sort of like two weird pronunciations of it. I think you've given yourself too much credit. You're just lazy. You can't be bothered to use the L. <laughs> <laughs> That's another theory. We'll call that the Welsh theory. <laughs> um, so I mentioned um, it comes from the Greek amygdala. The, the adjective amygdaloid means like an almond. And it's used to describe objects that are roughly almond-shaped, particularly uh, between somewhere between an ellipse and a triangle. And for example, that includes the part of the brain that we call the amygdala because it is shaped that way. In case anyone knew about the amygdala and was wondering if there was a connection, it's named that because it's shaped like an um, like an almond. And that part of the brain is primarily involved in processing emotions and memories associated with fear. Okay. So there you go. Following on from uh, our Halloween episode, <laughs> scary almonds or something. Um, so why talk about that first? Because the most famous alcohol, I think, that you can make with it is amaretto. 
Mm-mm. Fan of amaretto, right? Bloody love it. I get through so much of this mm. stuff over Christmas. It's, it's embarrassing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and Disarono, probably, being the most famous. Yeah, it's it's the OG. I've bought cheap versions yeah. from various supermarkets and it just doesn't hit mm-hmm. the spot. So amaretto is Italian for a little bitter. Um, although it is obviously quite sweet, sweet Italian liqueur. It originates in Sorono, uh, which is near Milan. Um, and depending on the brand, it can be made with almonds, sweet almonds, bitter almonds, apricot kernels, or peach stones. Nope. <laughs> which I thought would be a bit of a shock to you. Absolutely. Um, and that's because, remember I mentioned earlier, benzaldehyde gives that almond-like flavour in the liqueur, all of those things have benzaldehyde within them. So that's what's producing the flavour. Uh, and then amaretto is usually between 21-28% um, ABV. So apricots, peaches and almonds are all droops. They are not nuts. <laughs> so we've managed to start our nut episode by uh, talking about something that's not a nut. Droopy yes, nuts. I was very aware of this when I said we're going to do an episode on, on nuts, but I'm using the term very loosely. I do know that they're droops. So a droop is a fruit which has an outer fleshy part, uh, a skin called the exocarp, and then the flesh is the mesocarp which surrounds a single shell known as the stone or the pit or the pyrena. Um, And the hardened endocarp is the seed or the kernel within it. Uh, That's what we're looking at. So I think we renamed this episode Droopy Nuts. (laughs) Droopy Nuts. That's good with you. I've already said it, Droopy Nuts. Called it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So amaretto is the diminutive of the Italian words um, amare, which means bitter. Um, the bitterness in amaretto is quite mild, though. Um, they usually add sweet almonds, sweeteners to enhance the flavour. Um, so that's what it means. That's why it means a little bitter, because it's only a little bitter. Which is not to be confused with amaro, which is another Italian liqueur, but it's it is bitter and it's herbal. It's not almonds, unlike amaretto at all. So don't get those two confused, <laughs> or you might be disappointed. Right, I mentioned Di Serrano being kind of the most famous one. They use apricot kernels. What? They do not use almonds. My Has life that blown is your a mind? lie. Oh my god! Your life is a, your life is absolutely a lie. It's not almonds. It's apricot kernels. Oh, Another thing I didn't know is you absolutely should not eat them <laughs> because they also can give you uh, fatal cyanide poisoning when they're consumed. Just half half of a large kernel will give you enough for a fatal reaction. Bloody hell. Yeah, so don't do that. Um, <laughs> so according to Disarono, the liqueur is this infusion of apricot kernel oil with absolute alcohol. Um, you know, that just means it's kind of like they're not adding a vodka. They've made a pure alcohol. Burnt sugar and then the essence of 17 selected herbs and fruits. I didn't know it had so much in it either. Mm. Um, and then it's sold in this very distinctive oblong glass decanter, which was designed by craftsmen at Murano, which is the famous island for glass blowing in Venice that we've spoken about before. Um, the Di Serrano product was originally called Amaretto di Serrano, you know, because of where it comes from. That was until 2001 when it was rebranded as Di Serrano Originale, for marketing reasons, of course. It has a dubious origin story as well, which is probably more marketing. 
but I will tell it to you because I don't know any other origin stories. I couldn't find anything. This is all I've got. <laughs> um, so in, in 1525, a Serrano church commissioned uh, the artist Bernardino Luini, who was one of uh, Leonardo da Vinci's pupils, to paint its sanctuary and its frescoes. The church there is dedicated to the Virgin Mary, and Luini wanted to depict the Madonna, but uh, needed a model, and so he found a young widowed innkeeper who became his model, model, and in most versions of the story, also his lover. Um, her, out of gratitude and affection, she wanted to give uh, a gift, but she was quite poor, so what she did for this gift was to steep apricot kernels in brandy, and uh, the resulting concoction was what she gave to Luini, and apparently that's the origin of it, um, even though we don't use brandy in it now. Uh, if you do want to make sure you try a purely almond version of amaretto, not an apricot kernel, and see whether you can taste any difference, you could go for um, Villa Davada, which is an amaretto liqueur made in small quantities, solely from natural hand-peeled almond skins from the forest of Trentino, uh, which is up in that region. But yeah, you can find them, but they're, they're not as common. They're just not as common as the um, apricot stone version. Uh, another droop that you might be interested in, walnuts. Uh, so you can get walnut liqueur, which is called nocino. Uh, that's a dark brown liqueur from the Emilia-Romagna region in northern Italy. And it's made specifically from unripe green walnuts. And then they'll put other things in it, like cinnamon, juniper berries, lemon, orange zest, vanilla pods, coffee beans, and clove. Uh, Nocino is traditionally more alcoholic. So amaretto, I said, is in the 20s. Nocino is about 40%, like a strong spirit rather than a liqueur. So don't get your strengths mixed up if you're having both of those. Uh, according to Roman history, historians, though, uh, Nocino actually doesn't originate in Italy. It originated in Britain. Uh, so the earliest records are related to the Picts. Um, the Picts uh, were named by the Romans because Picti means painted, uh, and they used to paint their skin blue, uh, those people in the northern parts of Britain. And also, if you do remember, I think it was like the Measures episode, it shares the same root as pints, the word pint also comes from painted Picti. So the Pictish people painted their skins and they're drinking pints. <laughs> uh, but the Romans have these, these records of strange traditions from the people, the painted people of Britain, that on June 24th, which is summer solstice, uh, they would drink a very special brew, uh, which uh, they said helped them to talk to goblins, elves and goddesses. Yeah, I, <laughs> so, I still do that. They were having a great time on the Ticino. <laughs> uh, this, so this liqueur spread its way then through medieval France before it reached Italy. Um, and, but it's also found its way uh, under other names in surrounding countries. So even though I sort of knew it as an Italian liqueur, actually it spread quite away. Uh, walnut liqueur is produced in Romania, where it is called uh, Nucata. And... It's used as a digestif as well as just for lols. Uh, and that they for that one, they add anise and black pepper and lemon peel and orange peel, nutmeg and vanilla pods. Sounds interesting. In 
Slovenia, it's called Orohovic and is flavoured with coffee. While in Croatia, uh, very similar, Orohovic and flavoured with orange, lemon and vanilla. In New Zealand and Australia, it's called Nutzino. <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I don't need to throw any shade at that. It speaks for itself. Do you want some Nutzino, mate? Um, okay, I want to tell you about something that definitely is a nut. Because <laughs> otherwise, this is we're making a mockery of this whole thing. Uh, the hazelnut. Yeah. The hazelnut is actually a nut. Is it? Um, Are you sure? It is. It is. It's a tree nut. Other other true nuts are chestnuts, uh, which are often used to flavour syrups, but don't really seem to have a specific liqueur name. Um, and acorns. So if you want to know about acorn drinks, you have to go all the way back to episode six, Pims and Wimbledon. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's not in Pims, by the way. This was this was relating <laughs> to the Wombles. Um, so yes, it is it is a nut fact. Hazelnuts, um, chestnuts, acorns are nuts. Right, what can you do with hazelnut? Frangelico. Mm-hmm. That's what you can do. So it's a brand of noisette and herb flavoured liqueur coloured with caramel which is produced in Canale, Italy which is near Turin uh, Frangelico is made in a similar manner to all the other nut liqueurs which is just that the nuts are crumbled up they're combined with other things in this case cocoa, vanilla berries uh, and other natural flavours and then left to soak in the base spirit and when the spirit has absorbed the flavour of the ingredients, the liqueur is filtered, sweetened and bottled. So it's not a complex process by any means. It is just flavouring plain booze. Um, Frangelico was created in 1978, despite what I think is a sort of ancient looking appearance. <laughs> um, because it is known for this packaging, its bottle was designed to look like a Christian friar complete with a knotted white cord around the waist. So that's why when you see a bottle of Frangelico, it's got a little little rope around it. Uh, So according to the the manufacturer, the name of the liqueur is based on a legend of a hermit monk named Fra Angelico, who lived in the Piedmont region of Italy and created uh, these unique recipes uh, and liqueurs. I'm not entirely sure if it's the same person that I know as Fra Angelico the painter but I'm going to assume it is and just tell you about it <laughs> because Fra Angelico is also a well-known artist who is who was an indirect influence on Michelangelo you know he's a couple of generations before him but you can see the progression from um from Renaissance on early Renaissance um there was this uh, this press coverage regarding Fra Angelico uh, in November 2006 that two missing masterpieces by Fra Angelico had turned up in the spare room of Jean Preston in her house in Oxford. <laughs> her father had bought them for £100 each in the 1960s and bequeathed them to her when he died. Uh, he was an expert medievalist and recognised them as being high quality Florentine Renaissance but didn't know that they were worked by Fra Angelico until they were identified in 2005 by someone from Bristol University. Uh, There was pretty much no demand for medieval art during the 1960s uh, and so no one really showed any interest. Um, So (laughs) he so Preston bought them um, with some other manuscripts kind of as an afterthought. 
So these paintings are two of eight side panels of this large altarpiece that was painted in 1439 for the monastery of San Marco. Um, and these were split up by Napoleon's army, so they're all over the place now. Six of the panels are in German and US museums. Um, so these two panels were just thought, oh, they're lost forever. So the Italian government hoped to purchase them when they were put up for auction in 2007, but a private collector bought them for £1.7 million. Pounds I wonder what <laughs> She is no longer with us, uh, <laughs> I'm afraid. So uh, her estate is having a great time. Um, yeah, but both both panels have now been restored and they are in San Marco Museum in Florence. That's nice. Yeah. There's another artist connection with Frangelico, uh, much more contemporary. Jeff Koons, you've heard of him. He's a pop artist um, and a bit surreal. So he reproduced two of the frangelico advertisements uh, stay in tonight and find a quiet table in luxury and degradation uh, a series he did in 1986 which were these paintings and sculptures which was looking at the role of alcohol in culture so definitely something we should go and explore uh, according to coons he used the frangelico ads to define a particular pay bracket which was $45,000 and up in contrast to works in the other series which were corresponding to lower income levels which I thought was interesting so rather than it be you know maybe we might assume champagne or something yeah but uh yeah he went for Frangelico for some reason sounds fancy I guess <laughs> well it does sound sort of fancy it's not something that people typically buy but it's also not particularly expensive mm. so I don't know um, bit of hazelnut history? Sure. <laughs> in 1995, you weren't sure, but I'm going for it. Um, in 1995, uh, there was, um, they discovered evidence of a large scale Mesolithic nut processing, um, uh, uh, I was going to say plant, not plant, environment, place. There was evidence of large scale nut processing, uh, 8,000 years old. And it was found in a midden pit on the island of Colonsay in Scotland. So it's this large shallow pit full of the remains of hundreds of thousands of burned hazelnut shells. Um, hazelnuts have been found in other Mesolithic sites as well, but not in such quantity or concentrated in one pit. Um, yeah, they were, they were carbon dated back to 6000 BCE. The... Theory behind why they're so concentrated there on this island is just that there weren't any animal remains or anything. So, essentially, these people uh, in the Mesolithic kind of Scotland and Ireland um, islands were vegetarian. So they were just, you know, making sure they grew and ate a lot of nuts <laughs> for their proteins. Um, in Ireland and the UK, hazelnuts are sometimes called cob nuts. Do you've heard that before? Cob nuts. I, I certainly did. Um, for which a specific cultivated variety, Kent Cobnuts, is the main variety um, cultivated in, in fields. Uh, they're eaten green. That's kind of what they're known for. I remember doing that when I was young, finding Cobnuts and eating green ones. <laughs> My dad still does. Um, <laughs> <laughs> nice. I, well, I, I haven't seen any around. That's why I haven't done. Otherwise, I would. I mean, I, I've I got eat, a bowl. I love foraging. I've got a bowl full of them in my kitchen as we speak that my dad, <sighs> my dad picked. No way. Mm -hmm. Oh, I want some now. <laughs> um, so they're called cob nuts because cob was a word that um, used to refer to the head or noggin. 
And children had a game in which they would tie a string to a hazelnut. And you probably think the rest of this description is going to be like conkers, Mm -hmm. you know, like bashing conkers against each other on a string. No, no, no. They used to try and hit their opponents on the head. (laughs) (laughs) So that's why it's a head nut, cob nut, because they would hit each other over the head with them. (laughs) Can you please make use of your cob nuts in that manner, please? I can save some and next time you're here we can play. We can nut each other over the head. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, in 2020, world production of hazelnuts in shells was 1.1 million tonnes. The hazelnut production in Turkey accounts for 62% of the world's total, followed by Italy. And Ferrero, the maker of Nutella and Ferrero Rocher, mm. uses 25% of the global supply of hazelnuts. Oh. Yep. That is a lot, of, a lot of hazelnuts and a lot of Nutella. <laughs> the, I've got to tell you a little a sad bit. Um, the large number of hazelnut farms in Turkey, their less than stellar approach to human rights at the moment and the influx of Syrian refugees uh, that they've taken in means that there's quite a lot of child labour and exploitation going on around um, hazelnut farming. It was confirmed in report in 2019 by... Um, the BBC and um yeah so it's it's currently not a very happy industry the the hazelnut industry particularly in in Turkey which produces most of the hazelnuts which goes into your Nutella but please don't think about slavery next time you're having some Nutella but now you will (laughs) um right I'll move on from that I I didn't really um talk about any specific cocktails that you make with nut liqueurs and that's because it's so obvious um they're so delicious and sweet you know, that obviously you just pour them into any hot drink. <laughs> any hot drink, they're going to be delicious. Because they're sweet, you can make them into a sour. So put them with some lemon juice and maybe froth them up a bit. Um, the one thing I saw that I hadn't done with uh, nut liqueurs was add it to hot cider. Mm, that sounds good. I need like that one. Um, yes. So I thought, yes, I must remember to tell you that one because I obviously I've put it in coffee and all sorts of things before. But I thought, yeah, I haven't added, um, I haven't added like um, frangelico into oh. uh, into hot cider, God, and I might give good. it a go now. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> all right, uh, that's me done for not the cures. Okay. What you got for me? Um, milk. Funny enough, you thought I was drinking it earlier. So mm. I delved into the world of nut milks. Um, actually, I, I don't feel so bad now because I was worrying that I'd kind of gone away from nuts a little bit, but you talk about droops. <laughs> so um, <laughs> yeah. I started off on that milk and then obviously ventured into the world of non-dairy milks. So that's what I'm going to talk about. Okay. <clears throat> uh, so let's just set the scene. It's 2018. Mm-hmm. And the US Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, are trying to figure out what milk is. <laughs> Um, wow what that was did you say 2008 2018 oh 18 sorry yeah yeah which in a way is worse (laughs) all i was gonna say was 2008 was the financial crash there was more important stuff going on but to be honest 2018 wasn't much better (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah they're trying to work out what milk is uh in a policy summit on 17th of july of that year the FDA commissioner, Scott Gottlieb, he was very, very frustrated. 
Um, he was angry because the term milk was being used all willy-nilly in the enabling of non-dairy drinks. To quote Scott, an almond does not lactate. He was having none of it. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, <laughs> despite that uh, little outburst, it wasn't the semantics of it all that was annoying him. He claimed his worry was the um, having dairy and non-dairy under the same umbrella would dupe consumers into thinking that they are nutritionally equal, which could have catastrophic consequences like rickets in children and all sorts of stuff. Absolutely nothing to do with the fact that they heavily subsidised the dairy industry at all. Um, it mm-hmm. was just, yeah, he was concerned for consumers. Um, <laughs> Thanks for your concern. <laughs> Noted. But obviously since 2018, lots of different experts and nutritionists and scientists have done a lot of research and a lot of uh, studies. And long story short, milk isn't essential after infancy, as in dairy milk. Uh, You can get all the nutrients that you need, that you can get from cow's milk and dairy milk elsewhere very easily. So yeah, it's not essential after infancy and needs to come. Um, So linguistically speaking, using the word milk to refer to the white juice of certain plants, which by the way is the second definition of milk in the Oxford English Dictionary, um, (laughs) it has a history that dates back centuries. The Latin root word of lettuce is lact, as in lactate, for its milky juice. It shows that even the Romans had a fluid definition for milk. Uh, there's more proof. Um, almond milk shows up in pretty much every medieval cookbook to be found. Uh, I think <laughs> the first mention is from the 13th century in a Baghdadi cookbook. Uh, there's also Egyptian cookbooks in the 14th century that talk about almond milk a lot. Um England wasn't too far behind either. There have been cookbooks found with um, mentions of almond milk in 1390. So, yeah, it's been around for a long, old time. Um, So about almond milk. Almonds, um, they originate in the Middle East and they reached southern Europe um, with the Moors around the the 8th century. And their milk quickly became all the rage between aristocrats and they travelled as far as Iceland. It was becoming very popular in Europe. Um, But religion played a big part in almond milk becoming so popular as well because it was a great non-dairy alternative for people to enjoy if they had to abstain from um, dairy. So it was very popular during Lent Uh, But it was also popular during Ramadan in uh, a lot of Islamic recipes. So it caught on like wildfire and was very, very popular in Europe. Um, And around the same time that almond milk was peaking in Europe, a precursor to soy milk called Dufujian was becoming very popular in China. This is why I stopped talking about nuts so much, but I was really enjoying this research about non-dairy it makes sense it makes sense (laughs) i'm with you i'm (laughs) i'm enjoying the the lack of a need to specifically throw shade at people who get antsy about what is milk because it's like well the rest of history in the world didn't seem to mine (laughs) we survived we survived (laughs) 
Um, so yes, uh, precursor to soy milk was emerging in uh, China. Uh, this stuff was ladled hot into bowls for breakfast and served with crisp, savoury donuts. Oh, I mean, oh. come on, guys. That involuntary. <laughs> that sound is involuntary. Oh, it's so good. So, so good. Um, so that it was in the 14th century in China that they were having these amazing um, donuts and hot kind of soy milk. Uh, but then soy milk did quickly emerge not long after that. It was um, 1365, the first mentions are in Chinese text. Um, and it did reach Europe very quick. No, well, I say quickly. It, it reached Europe in the 19th century. Uh, it was brought to both Europe and the USA and successfully cultivated. Um, the term soybean milk first appeared in a US publication in 1897 and it featured a, a, a nice big table that compared the nutritional qualities of soy milk and cow's milk which I just think people would absolutely shit themselves if anybody tried that right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> but unfortunately not long after all the dairy industry started to get a bit annoyed um, it was 1945, a chap called Bob Rich created a soya-based whip topping and the dairy industry um, filed a lawsuit against him because they claimed it was an imitation dairy product, which was illegal. He took them on and argued that it wasn't an imitation dairy product, it was a replacement, and he won. Mm. So a bit of success. Um over in the UK in the 70s, due to pressure from the dairy industry, soya milk was forced to be called liquid food of plant origin. <laughs> <laughs> Catchy. Uh, later, it became soya plant milk. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that's a little history of soya milk. Didn't go into it too much. Um, rice milk doesn't have as rich a history, but it isn't new uh, by any means. Uh, there are no definitive records to show the first mention of it, but it was established enough by 1921 to open the first rice milk factory in San Francisco. Uh, uh -huh. So there is definitely a market for it, but it's not as popular these days in comparison to some of the other non-dairy milks. A lot of people think that's due to the fact that it doesn't go very well with tea and coffee. Um, so people tend to just drink it on its own. <clears throat> yeah. Um, and people tend to not drink, well, I don't anyway, drink um, plant-based milk on its own. I tend to just use it in tea, coffee, recipes. Um, yeah. But speaking of which, the same was um, the case for kind of dairy milk for a long time. Drinking fresh milk um, as a beverage was fairly uncommon until the 19th century. So in places where people could digest lactose... It was occasionally drunk on its own, but it was more commonly fermented to make it more digestible and also to try and keep out the nasty uh, pathogens. Mm -hmm. um, but obviously its perishability played a major role and the fact that in order to produce it on a mass scale, um, it's very costly, very complex. Um, but people, you know, have managed to do it and the dairy industry is thriving. Um, but the non-dairy milk is coming for you. The market's booming. It currently accounts for 15% of the total European milk market. Um, it's predicted to grow a further 13% by 2025, where it'll be worth £511 million in Europe. 
Um, <clears throat> so an increase in that is obviously a lot of people moving to plant-based diets, but the actual mm-hmm. non-dairy milk market is um, growing kind of in the number of products it's given. So oat milk, pea milk, potato milk, um, it's a few new brands of macadamia milk, pistachio milk, everyone's milking the nuts. Um <coughs> So um, wasn't that wasn't that the title of your first album? <laughs> yeah, you can call it an album. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, a lot of these barely made a dent in um, sales data a decade ago. But in the year to June twenty twenty two, so the last twelve months essentially, give or take, oat milks um, their sales have risen by over fifty percent. I bloody love mm. an oat milk as well. <clears throat> it's my it's very versatile. And. As well as doing one in supermarkets and consumers buying them, um, one big kind of route to market, I guess, that they're looking at is coffee shops as well. Um, Selling a lot to coffee shops. Oatly, it was um, publicised a lot that they just couldn't keep up with demand when Starbucks introduced Oatly milk to their outlets. I think it was last year. They just couldn't match the demand for for the amount of oat milk Starbucks needed. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's quite interesting, in the last few months I've noticed that Starbucks have introduced their own version of um, a plant-based milk. It's just Starbucks' own nut blend milk. So, you know when Starbucks are making their own, it's not going anywhere anytime soon. Mm. Um, Another milk that I've not talked about, um, coconut milk. So coconut yep. milk, milk has been the backbone of Southeast Asian, African, Indian cuisine for centuries. Um, some languages like Thai, Filipino, Swahili, they even have their own separate specific word for coconut milk. Whereas others like Farsi, Hindi, Punjabi, they use the term milk to describe animal and plant secretions, if that's what you want to call it. <laughs> Um, secretions so um, they don't get too annoyed if you say milk and say well it's not come from a tit so (laughs) so this is making me thirsty for milk so I'm going to teach y'all how to make your own you do it you do it don't you Tim I do you're one of those smug people that makes it and I'm one of those lazy people that buys it (laughs) what should I be doing then to make to make it, let's see if I'm doing the right things. Okay, so uh, my favourite is oat milk, but essentially the process is the same for all of the nuts. Um, so you take 100 grams of oats or almonds or whatever you want to make it with, um, put them in a large bowl and cover with water, leave them preferably overnight, but four hours at a push if you're in a rush. Once you've left them overnight or four hours, drain them, rinse them, put them in a blender with a tiny pinch of salt and some cold water. 750 mils I've got written down here. You whiz that up until it's nice and smooth, pour that mix into a muslin bag or a sieve lined with muslin, Uh, put it over a jug and allow that to drip through. Um, It can be a long process, you have to be patient. You can gently stir it to speed things up, but let nature do it for us. Once most of the liquid is dripped, gently squeeze the bag with both hands to get the last bit out. And then you whisk in 500 mils of cold water and your milk is ready. Put it in the fridge if you want it cold. 
Nice. <clears throat> I've got some tips. Yeah. It is better to soak it overnight. Um, it makes for a creamier milk and more nutritional because you get all the good bits out. Um, stirring. So once you've made your milk, because obviously it's homemade, it doesn't have those added emulsifiers, so it will separate. So either give it a good stir or shake before you enjoy. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have a sweet tooth or prefer a slight sweetened flavour, you can do this a number of ways. One or two pitted medjool dates in the blender before you blend. That's a nice natural way of adding flavour. Um, a pinch of cinnamon if you want a bit of spice in there. Um, vanilla essence, uh, maple syrup, lots of ways you can add sweetness. To make it even cheaper, obviously buy your nuts in bulk. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> use your pulp. Um, don't throw away any pulp. You can use it in baking. Uh, there's lots of recipes I found online doing my research on the BBC Good Food website. There was a lemon drizzle cake um, using some pulp from mm-hmm. nut milk. That sounds amazing. Um, also, cashew nut pulp makes a really tasty dip. If you add tahini, mm. lemon juice, smoked paprika, cumin and olive oil. Um, last thing is a heads up, coconut milk. If you are going to try and make that at home, don't bother. <laughs> the sheer, yeah, <laughs> the pass, sheer amount pass. of coconut that you'd need to use to get a nice creamy milk. It's just not worth it. It would be cheaper to just buy it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I completely agree. <laughs> and the same, well, not the same, but with rice milk, it's very hard to make rice milk that's not quite watery and just... It's Mm -hmm. very hard to nail it. So, rice milk and coconut milk, buy it in the supermarket. The rest of your nuts and oats and whatnot, follow Mm -hmm. my little recipe. Does that sound good? Squeeze your pulpy, bulky nuts. Yeah, got it. Soaky nuts. There's one more thing. There's one more thing I do that you haven't mentioned actually, which is uh, once I've uh, made the milk. So, with um, oat milk in particular, it can get a bit slimy. So sometimes, like, especially if you haven't used, like, you know, soaked it or, or iced the water or whatever, if you um, add in digestive enzymes, so you can get, like, pills of digestive enzymes, which occur naturally in your body anyway, so it's supposed to aid your digestion. But if you crush it up, like, between two, uh, um, two teaspoons and add it to the milk, then it starts di- breaking down the long um, uh, carbohydrate chains so it stops it from being uh, gloopy and slimy. So I do that as well. Where some does, people complain where about Where does it one purchase an enzyme capsule? You can just go, <laughs> just Holland and Barrett. Okay. Yeah. You know I'm going to go in and just buy some oat milk. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, of course you are. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, is that you done? That's me done. I've, I've, Thank you. I was going to make a nuts. crude joke about nothing, but I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think we've already we've already milked that one. Hey. Hey. Um, I thought I should finish with uh, mention of the peanuts just for you. All right, I've got an EpiPen here somewhere. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, obviously, many people are allergic to peanuts uh, in the West, in particular. Um, between three and six percent uh, in the West, depending on where you are, and it is rising as well. Um, there was 
there was some historic advice that infants should avoid contact with peanuts because it's seen as this kind of like growing um, dangerous allergy. Um, and, you know, parents are sort of scared to expose their babies to it in case they're allergic. Actually, the evidence points to the opposite. Like, you should be exposing your children to all sorts of foods. Um, they they tested this in lab conditions with placebos, and it was something like seven, over 70% of infants that were exposed to peanuts uh, did not kind of um, d- develop any kind of reaction or, like, had didn't have a reaction, 2% did, or I can't remember what all these stats were. I'm talking nonsense now. But anyway, <laughs> the point was... They they proved that you sh- it's better to expose uh, babies to stuff and it, it increases the chances that they mm-hmm. won't be allergic to stuff later in life. It's the old uh, um, chicken yeah. box party thing, isn't it? Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of is. Just basically get your baby, throw him around in the dirt, and then throw him around in a food buffet. That seems to be the advice. That's fine. <laughs> I don't know if you've read about it, but um, um, also they say that people that have um. Peanut, peanut allergies in particular but I think they've done it with other allergies where they can reintroduce it to you and, and build back up an immune an immunity to it I don't know if it's people with like you know proper full-on allergic reactions to it mm. could do that but people who have a slight allergy just slowly and I mean like really tiny amounts introduce yeah it I think that probably needs to be lab controlled as opposed to uh licking the odd snickers and seeing what happens <gasps> I might give it a bash later <laughs> <laughs> Please don't. Uh, peanuts, not a nut, <laughs> either. <laughs> it's not, it a, it's not a droop. Oh. Nope, it's, a it's not a droop. It's not a nut. I was going to say it's a, a legume. Dickhead. <laughs> <laughs> Is it a dickhead? No, it's a legume. <laughs> um, so... I wanted to tell you, I thought, hmm, is there a peanut liqueur? Because I feel like I've never seen one. Um, so I discovered something called Peanut Lolita. <laughs> and this is the description I found of it online. Peanut Lolita is the name of an unpopular US whiskey and peanut based liqueur. <laughs> produced it's unpopular. Produced in the 1960s and 1970s. Oh, <laughs> like already that was enough for me, but I wanted to know more. Um the label for Peanut Lolita features a belly dancing woman in a 1970s Middle Eastern inspired design. Like, as if this could get any dodgier. It was sold as, you're going to love this, it was sold as a nutty dessert alcohol, sweet, thick, and gritty in texture. God. It's like they were trying to make it bad. It's a 27% ABV alcohol. The official spokesperson for this liqueur was Billy Carter, who um, is the brother of Jimmy Carter, who was the president at the time. Oh God! Can you imagine Christmas time? The awkwardness of that. Like you know, your brother's prime min- or president, and you've just got a shit dodgy liqueur that nobody likes. Yeah, weird, weird, gritty peanut liqueur. <laughs> there was a cocktail you could make with it. Cool. Brace yourself. Called the Brown Bomber. <laughs> Let me guess. Open up the gritty liqueur. Pour it down the sink. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what i actually don't know what's in it I, the name was too much for me and i couldn't go any further it said it's um <laughs> it, it says the origin of the drink is unclear it may have been created in honor of joe louis the african-american boxer and world heavyweight champion from 1937 to 1949 who was nicknamed the brown bomber oh god that's such an unfortunate but, nickname 
We're, yeah, we're 20 years after that, so I'm not entirely convinced it isn't as bad as we think it is. Um, but anyway, let's all just avoid <laughs> peanuts and booze, <laughs> unless they're bar snacks and you're not allergic, I think is the, the moral of the story. Yeah. <laughs> Anything else to finish on? No, I feel a bit sick. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I <laughs> did end it in a weird way, didn't I? So our glasses have run dry, which means it's time to squeeze our droops and milk our nuts. Cheers, everybody. You can always hear me sing in this song. Show me the way to go home.